Welcome to the Faith and Culture Now podcast. I'm Scott Schiffer, and today I'm joined uh, here in St. Matthew's Cathedral with Dean Robert Price. So, Dean, it's good to have you here. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be with you, Scott. So, uh, in the second season of our podcast, we did a series where we interviewed different leaders of other faiths to help educate people about what other groups of uh, people just believe. And since then, I've been wanting to do a series where we lo uh, look at and talk to leaders of other denominations in the Christian tradition uh, to sort of get an idea of what different groups of believers uh, have in their traditions, um, sort of what makes them distinct, and uh, sort of just to see how we uh, also just kind of correlate and relate together. And so today, we're going to be talking with Dean Price about uh, the Anglican and Episcopalian tradition. And so, once again, thank you for being here. Of course, absolutely. Well, um, you know, Anglicanism is a, in a sense, is a, I like to say it's a spiritual tradition of which the Episcopal Church is a particular denominational manifestation. Yes. I would, I'd compare it to the Wesleyan tradition and then the United Methodist Church and the Nazarenes. And, and, and so, the, in a sense, the tradition really encompasses uh, a, a worldwide family of believers and the Episcopal Church is how, you know, those believers are organized here in the States. Yes, very good. And so for those of you who may not know at home, Anglicanism uh, comes from England. Uh, it was started in the Protestant Reformation, uh, essentially when Henry VIII um, didn't really want to, uh, well, he wanted to divorce one of his wives. The Catholic Church said no, mm -hmm. and so uh, he reached out to Martin Luther. Martin Luther also said, no, I don't agree with you. Right. And uh, so one of the things he decided was that perhaps the King of England should be the head of the England Church, and they called it Anglicanism. Right. Uh, but that's uh, uh, not really characteristic necessarily of what the Church believes. That's just sort of uh, where it kind of birthed from. Right. And so what are some of the, uh, I guess if you will, just traditions, and uh, what are some of the, you know, important parts of history of Anglicanism. Well, so, and, and you may, so, you know, we do, we come from a historical accident in, in the life of, of a particular monarch in England. Um, but really, I think going forward from that point, and I think that that heritage of, um, you know, what, what Henry VIII, in a sense, what he wanted was, uh, he wanted a reformed church with bishops. Mm -hmm. He appreciated the, the that, the ordering, uh, the ecclesial order of the Catholic Church, but the, was he read into Lutheranism, and he, you know, was attracted by um, the the Lutheran state churches, right? Mm -hmm. And so he said, okay, well, here's a Reformed tradition that works with has a state church, and that's what, um, again, from that worldview, the idea that one would have a church living outside the state was, you know, uh, you know. They could, they couldn't. That, that, sure. That's something that could be comprehended. So the the church and state were one, and each one upheld the other. And so, out of that historical accident, Anglicanism really, in my judgment, arose as a, a family of believers that have their foot in. In a sense, we we see ourselves both as being part of the family of the Reformation churches mm -hmm. and part of the family of, of the Catholic churches, being Roman, Eastern Orthodox, um, and so. Uh, now, uh, other members of those families uh, may disagree with us about yeah, our, sure. our success in, in being a member of both or their particular ones. They, oh no, you're in that family, um, and so uh, Roman Catholics tend to believe, you know, tend to see us as being much, much too reformed. 
and other reform folks in the reform traditions tend to see us as fairly Catholic, but that's just the, I think, part of the, the tension in which we as Anglicans and Episcopalians in particular, uh, in a sense, choose to live. Yeah. Is, is within that tension of being members of, of both families, wanting to be members of both traditional families. Yeah. One of the things that I find very appealing about the Anglican tradition is that um, there's a lot of reverence and a lot of humility in the Anglican tradition, especially in the way that the worship is played out. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of the Reformed churches, uh, and by the way, so you, you said Reformed church a couple of times, uh, for Baptists, a lot of times when they hear the word Reformed, oh. they think of Calvinist. Sure. And sure. what you're referring to as Reformation Church. That's correct. And so, uh, and a lot of the Reformed churches in that venue, in that vein, um, there's, I don't want to say a lack of reverence for God, mm. but I'm Baptist. And in the Baptist tradition, uh, we, would, we would be what you would call sort of a low church, if you will, sure. not a high church. Yeah. And as such, um, Sometimes I feel like people in our tradition get to be a little too buddy-buddy with God, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think in the Anglican tradition, uh, because it's more closely associated with the Catholic tradition, it's less like that. Mm -hmm. And that's very appealing. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, uh, because it's part of the Reformed work of uh, Protestantism, uh, it's also very much a, um, I don't know, if you will, there's a there's a very deep aspect of personal relationship as well. So yes. it's reverent and personal, um, not so much just, uh, you know, uh, I guess if you will, we're not looking to worship God on the friendship level. It's, it's very reverent, so. Right, well, and, and, and thank you for raising that. I think that in, on, on the one hand, on the theological level, the way those things are com combined is that in, in Anglicanism, there is both a desire to include what I would, I would refer to both as the objective and subjective <laughs> elements of ecclesial life. Yeah. That is the objective life of the, of the church as kind of um, the way I talk about our view of ourselves and what we're up to in the world is that we see ourselves as an embassy of another kingdom. Mm -hmm. And so that this nave is holy ground. It's, it's kind of a, an outpost of the kingdom of God. And that in a sense, when, when we are here present that we it's like the, the the president is with us right jesus is right here and we act like um my 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 wife's mother used to say when she was a child to get them to behave at dinner it's like eat as if the president is eating with us here at the table <laughs> and in a sense we we eat our with our communion and our and, and and our hymns and our prayers and even our silence in a sense we eat together uh as if well, not just as if, but really experiencing Jesus, our King, right here with us. And I think that's where the source of that reverence is, something where that we believe that Jesus is objectively present. <laughs> Even if you don't feel it, sure, he's still here. And that's kind of a comfort in a sense. Like Even if I don't personally feel the presence, I'm in a community that feels the presence. And they can sustain me until I have a subjective experience. And I think that's what as the part of our Reformation um, heritage is, is desiring and, and feeling that it is also normative to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Mm -hmm. And that, that and especially a personal relationship with Jesus mediated not only through the sacraments, the objective sacraments of the church, but also through the subjective uh, comprehension of the word of God and the scriptures. Mm -hmm.
and that that and that the scriptures in our tradition remain a a primary uh, a means through which the Holy Spirit uh, engages the heart and minds of those who follow Jesus. And I think part of the Reformation tradition is kind of we say that Anglicanism is a Reformed Catholicism, <laughs> which in our and kind of my take on that is in a sense that the scriptures are raised up and seen as in a, in a sense uh, an independent you know kind of witness to faithfulness that can correct the church and must correct the church sure even as the church receives the scriptures into its common life of worship yeah that makes sense i uh, you know tell my students a lot i never question what the bible says you know is, is the bible correct in this but what i do question is Am I reading this correctly? Right. You know, am what, is what I'm doing with Scripture the proper way to understand what it's telling me to do? Yes. And uh, I think it's good for students of the Word to always be asking that question. And I think we always have room to grow in our knowledge of Scripture and also uh, in how that plays out in our faith practice. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned the sacraments. What are the uh, main sacraments of the Anglican tradition? What are the important sacraments for you guys? So we identify the dominical sacraments, what we call the, the sacraments that come directly from the Lord, mm -hmm. uh, the dominical sacraments of baptism and the Holy Eucharist as the center of our life and the center of our worship on a weekly basis. So every time we gather on the Lord's Day, we'll celebrate the Eucharist. Sure. And has the, the uh, you know, we, when, when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, we take it literally and we do it every time we get together as the people of God. Um, and so uh, that that baptism is uh, is an entrance into the family, the household of God, and mm -hmm. it's the beginning of that journey. And so in our architecture um, of our churches, we'll always, and so you can't see this on camera, but beyond the camera, down the aisle, is the baptismal font. And so then behind us is the, is the altar, and the sense that's laid out that way to symbolize the the journey from our initiation into the kingdom life of Jesus mm -hmm. in the font and our journey literally a walking up the aisle to the raised you know the ascent into the kingdom of God uh, by the grace of Jesus given to us in the sacrament of his body and blood yeah. now we also have uh, so in a sense, uh, now unlike, so the Roman Catholic Church, for example, they, they'd say the answer is seven. You know, mm -hmm. Now we would say there are two dominical sacraments and seven other uh, sacramental acts. Mm -hmm. right? So, and which we would include the other five that Roman, our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters would have. Sure. And, but the way that we uh, um, receive those sacraments is that all the other, the other five are all rooted in the primary two. Mm -hmm. So confirmation, for example, is rooted, is in a, in a sense a deepening of the sacrament of baptism in mm -hmm. the heart of the individual believer. Um, the sacrament of, of unction, or the, the anointing of the sick, is a deepening of both the grace of the Holy Spirit in baptism that one receives for the healing of, body, of, of soul, um, and then praying for the healing of the body as well, but also it's a reception in some ways of the grace of the Eucharist as the, the meal of the kingdom, and so leading in that kingdom. So mm -hmm. the, the way we talk about the other five sacraments are always in reference to the main two that we 
feel we share with all Christians um, who uh, follow Jesus. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, um, looking around, like this is a beautiful sanctuary. I may, for the video, before we're done, just sort of do a little panoramic yeah. so that people can see what the rest of the sanctuary looks like. But uh, it's essentially laid out with stained glass windows. Mm -hmm. uh, you have up on both sides of here areas where uh, there would be a choir able to sit. What are some of the, uh, I guess, if you will, basic uh, properties of a worship service in your tradition? So um, essentially the, the service is, you know, kind of taking the Sunday morning service as the norm. The sure. Norm. Um, there are other services that happen, but that's really the main thing. <laughs> and so um, that is divided into two parts, the service of the word and the service of the sacrament um, or commun Holy Communion. So uh, the, the structure would be kind of entering into worship with an invocation of the Trinitarian name. So we'll say, blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and blessed be his kingdom now and forever, amen. And so we begin with that invocation of Trinitarian life. So in a sense, indicating that everything we're doing is an entry into the life of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is coming deeper into the heart of that relationship of love um, and joy that is the mark of the kingdom life and so uh, so we start there and then we essentially have some introductory prayers but really the heart of the first part is the reading of scripture and so we'll read a lesson from the Old Testament we'll read one of the epistles mm -hmm. um, Pauline or otherwise and then we'll read uh, and we'll have in between those two readings we'll have a psalm that will be read or sung mm -hmm. and then um, and then it culminates in a reading of the gospel. And so the gospels, the reading of the gospel is really the, the high point ceremonially of that first part of the service. Sure. As the words of Jesus are, you know, kind of come into the world again, enfleshed in the readers themselves. Mm -hmm. And so it's in a sense a celebration of another, um, of course, not comparing in kind to the incarnation of the word in the flesh of Jesus, but in a sense a sign of incarnational life, that the word becomes flesh once again in the community of believers, which is kind of a value added to just when I read the Bible myself, right? Right. And then then there's a sermon, and so there's always a sermon, and the Eucharist has a, a, in a sense, the sermon is, is positioned as a continuation of the reading of the gospel. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a continuing celebration of the word of Jesus, the word of God, who's come into our midst. Then uh, there'll be a recitation of the Nicene Creed, which again kind of outlines um, for us as Anglicans, that's really the standard of doctrinal faith. Mm -hmm. it's, it's basically you have the Nicene Creed, and anything beyond that is speculative. <laughs> you know, sure. But that's authoritative for us. That's authoritative. And, um, and then... Uh, and then we move forward into the service of communion, right? And which is, um, again, the service of communion itself is structured around a remembrance. So there's an aspect of remembrance. On the night before he died, he took the bread and he broke it and said, so there's this remembrance of the past act uh, through which we uh, receive the forgiveness of our sins and through which the atonement of humanity and God is accomplished. By Jesus' death on the cross. But then it moves from there into an invocation of the Spirit and 
in a sense, it moves into kind of an the the reception of our future in the risen Jesus and in his body and blood. So it, that is organized again through this kind of from past remembrance to anticipation of a promised future. And then it ends with, after the congregation has received that gift of forgiveness of past sins, promise of future joy, we're sent out into the world mm -hmm. um, and dismissed. And that's where the, the word mass comes from, is, is kind of the dismissal of the people into the world um, to serve in Jesus' name. Yeah, very good. And I would imagine that doing the Eucharist at the end of the service, um, it, it helped people prepare their hearts and minds by having all of the scriptural readings and uh, the other participative things they do in the worship service leading up to that. Um, it, it sort of, I think, would prepare them mm -hmm. for that time. Right. One is, you, and, and which you'll be able to show uh, uh, the, the, the watchers and the listeners of the podcast is that even in our, the topography of the space, it's an ascent. So in a sense, the, 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 the preaching of the word and the reading of the word literally happens just a couple steps down from the reception of the word in the sacrament. So mm -hmm. kind of my work as a celebrant takes place in the highest spot in the room. Uh, and so it's literally kind of a, a climbing up into uh, the kingdom of God. Um, which also comes to kind of meet us yeah. um, in that high point. Very good. Well, you mentioned, uh, you know, having the uh, you know, Old Testament reading, having a reading from the Psalms, having a reading from the Gospels, uh, which, by the way, very much mirrors what a lot of times took place in worship services in the ancient church. Uh, we find, you know, from sermons and other things that we have, uh, you know, that we found through archaeological finds and whatnot, uh, from the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, that's essentially the pattern that was followed in the earliest congregations. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, with that, uh, today we have what we call the liturgical calendar, mm -hmm. which I think is somewhat uh, related to the Book of Common Prayer. Yes. But uh, if I understand correctly, a lot of the readings for the Anglican tradition uh, in, in the Book of Common Prayer sort of correlate together so that not only is your congregation having a specific reading, but aren't most other Anglican tradition congregations having a very similar reading each Sunday? Yes, absolutely. And so that so the, the community of faith which receives the word of God um, and the, through the, the scriptures receive it together with other communities. And since <laughs> we're all has the whole people of God, the idea is that there has a whole people of God, we are um, receiving the same word together at the same time. And yet, each congregation will hear it differently because they're, well, not only because they have different preachers, but also because they're in a different place mm -hmm. with a different people and different challenges. And yet, the, the grace of God is such that the scriptures can be applied in every place and every time to every person um, and will speak to them differently given where they are. And so there's that, there's that uh, the unity we find in, you know, since sharing across the whole Anglican global family sharing in that reading of God together. Mm -hmm. You know, 90 million odd people all hearing the same, or roughly the same lessons um, every Sunday morning. Yeah, I think that's very important. You know, in the Baptist tradition, there is essentially, you know, no real um, standard for preaching, right? So 
you know, there may be four Baptist churches in a town, and in that town, each one's preaching their own sermon, they're looking at different scripture, and I think there's something special to be said about knowing that other congregations are doing something very similar, not only in, you know, service order, which is pretty similar in most Baptist churches, but also in the scripture reading that other believers in another congregation are reading pretty much the same text you're reading the right. same day. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's very powerful. And um, and so the and also the inclusion of the Old Testament in that, you know, I'm making sure we kind of cover the basis of you sure. know, in the sense we hear both from the Old Testament and from the epistolary literature and from the Gospels is it says something about the Old Testament. I mean, mm -hmm. there's a doctrinal statement in that, which is that we receive the scriptures of the Old Testament as testifying to Christ. Mm -hmm. That's why we read them, and, and that's what's in there. If you want to know what's in the Old Testament, Jesus is in the Old Testament, and it testifies to him. And, and in a sense, even just that ordering of, of readings uh, is designed to speak to the faithful about how we hear scriptures which may be very strange to us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, think that's, uh, I think that's important to, to pick up on, too, just because the Word of God is the whole word of God, right. and John refers to Christ as the word of God, right. uh, which I think speaks to the idea of all of God's word being a testament to the person of Christ. Exactly. So, yes. Yeah. Um, well, let me ask you this. Um, within most traditions, in, the, in Protestant and Catholic traditions, uh, there tend to be social issues that different denominations tend to be sort of pulled towards. Sure. Uh, and part of that's on, based on location. You know, yeah. So, uh, things that Anglicans in Texas are looking at is probably a little different than maybe, you know, Anglicans in, uh, say, California. Uh, mm -hmm. Although I'm sure there are some similarities, but it may not be, you know, 100%. Sure. Uh, but what are some of the big social issues that the Anglican Church is involved in uh, in our culture? Well, and, and let alone Anglicans in Uganda or Kenya oh, sure. <laughs> you know, yeah. or Nigeria so and or, uh, or Argentina. So... Uh, yes, and that's one of the, um, in some ways, that's really the struggles, one of the struggles that we have as Anglicans is being a part of a worldwide family of believers um, that are hearing the same scriptures and are, and can hear them quite differently uh, from one another because of our cultural milieu. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and part of the struggle is that in our tradition, we don't have a final magisterium, like a, a, we don't have the Pope, we don't have the Vatican, we don't have a, a group of people that can wrap someone on the knuckle and say, that's wrong. And so we're trying to be a, a global family uh, without a central authority. And I can tell you, it's hard. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> it's, it's really hard without somebody to say, wrong, right, or you know, stop that now. Um, and so uh, one of the, again, the presenting issues is really in many ways, I think, is the, the issue that's, that is presented across the spectrum in many faith families um, in, in our culture, which is the, the human person and sexuality. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, in a sense, has the culture moves in a very different direction, you know, and in, mm -hmm. in a sense to, to a very accelerated degree then in a sense it, it kind of re redounds upon the church to respond mm -hmm. to that movement in a variety of ways. And so 
there are Episcopalians in other parts of the country who have responded to the culture's uh, moves around the human person, around human sexuality by um, endorsing it mm -hmm. and by kind of blessing it. And, right. and, um, and then there have been others, and in this diocese, that's where, where, that's where we live and, and kind of where we inhabit is uh, a, a posture in which we would say that doesn't sound like the fullness of the scripture's word to us. Sure. And, uh, but even in that formulation, you can hear an Anglican distinctive <laughs> where we would say, that doesn't sound like the fullness of what God's will is for us. We, we would tend to want to, um, I think that Episcopalians, particularly even those of us who have a more traditional understanding of the human person and sexuality, mm -hmm. we, te we tend to want, we're, we're a people who tend to pull our punches. And we, we, sure. we tend to not want to speak in terms of that sinful or what have you. We, we tend to want to think in terms of, uh, in a sense, a, a vision of human flourishing and then how we, as Reformation people, how all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and, in a sense, live into that and say, okay, how do we pastorally respond mm -hmm. to what is being presented to us not necessarily has an abstract cause, but in the very flesh and bones of our people in our congregation. That is, we sure. have people in our congregation that are wrestling with the with the human person and with sexuality. Yeah. So, how do we respond to them in love? Sure. And, and what is the loving thing to do? And that's that's really where we kind of come at. Yeah. But it's been a source of conflict for sure. I bet. I, I think that's probably the case in in many denominations. I know it's an issue in the Baptist denomination. Uh, and in a lot of Baptist denominations, I think the response has not been in love. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and sometimes it is. And so there are some great Baptist churches out there that are doing that. But, um, you know, I know I've, I preached at a church uh, a couple years ago. And before the sermon started, I was able to sit down and talk with some of the deacons. And uh, one of the things they mentioned to me was that there was a same-sex couple that had visited their church. And they let them know real quick they weren't welcome. Mm. And I said, oh, I don't, I don't think that's probably the right response. Mm. Um, and so we, we talked a little bit about it. I don't think I changed anyone's mind. Right. But, uh, you know, as Christians, we are called to take the gospel to the world, take God's kingdom to the world. And uh, we have to, to really wrestle with these kind of significant issues. And uh, you're right. I mean, you look at, and you mentioned, you know, the Episcopalian group is sort of like a part of that Wesleyan tradition. Uh, not Wesleyan tradition, excuse me, Anglican tradition. Right. Um, and, um, uh, but I'm thinking, in my head, I'm thinking of the Wesleyan tradition with the Methodist and how there are now different Methodist denominations that are on different sides of the fence with, yes. with that particular issue. Right. And um, I think you're seeing the same thing in Presbyterian denominations. You're seeing the same thing in Baptist denominations. And uh, so uh, I think, you know, ultimately as Christians, we submit to the authority of God's word, mm -hmm. and we we do our best to interpret faithfully uh, what God's word teaches. And then, uh, from the perspective of what God's word says, we go, okay, now how do we take this and uh, take it to the people, and in in a way that we're able to love them where they're at, right. help them where they're at, and uh, you know, I mean, ultimately, you know, when you have that kind of hateful response 
you're not really opening any doors or building any bridges to the gospel. Right. And so for me, that's very problematic. Sure. Uh, you know, but at the same time, full endorsement of certain things is also problematic. Uh, sure. Uh, because you're then, in, in some respects, taking yourself outside of the authority of Scripture. So. Right. Well, I think that whatever the issue is, I mean, another issue could very well be the, the polarization in our culture around oh, politics. Yeah. And uh, in a sense, I think that to be a scriptural people, in a sense to have the scripture at the center of our life together, means that as followers of Jesus, we cannot afford to be uncritical about anything in the world, <laughs> anything in our culture. And so it can speak that the scriptures may have a word to what we would you know, politically read as the left of our culture, and the scriptures will have a word to the right of our culture. Mm -hmm. And that we as followers of Jesus um, are called to kind of live in that tension um, of the polarization, I think, in, in, our, in our current moment. Well, and but you to, probably have people in your own congregation who are politically on one side yes. and politically on the other side. Yes, very much so. And yeah. so to, to be engaged in ministry in, in, in the purple... Um, as opposed to the red and the blue. Sure. <laughs> you know? But Jesus was vested in purple, so I think that's a good start. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a good connection. <laughs> <laughs> um, as much as we might agonize and suffer with each other um, and bear with one another's sins. And mm -hmm. I think that, that, you know, one of the things I like, you know, I, I try to remind my, my folks is that Again, starting from the scriptures, and again, and, and it's, it's a discipline to start from the scriptures and from the witness of the church as it has read those scriptures over time. So, number one, you, you, uh, you mentioned humility um, early on. And that's one of the humilities of Anglicanism is not to privilege the present reading of scripture over the readings of scriptures that, that of our fathers in the faith. Sure. You know, I think it's important to do that. You know, um, I mean, there are some present readings of scriptures that no one read the scripture that way until the 1800s or the 1900s. Yes. And you know, and then you know, when you hear someone say this is the right way to read this, you're going, but what about the first 1800 years of Christians that all read it differently? <laughs> right. Like, were they all wrong? I mean, right. you know, so. Well, and, and knowing what, and in a sense, the on ethical issues in particular, uh, where the scriptures witness. Is, is fairly clear and has been heard in the same way for a long, long time. Uh, nevertheless, as the Episcopal nevertheless, to know the right answer mm -hmm. in, in, in a sense in our kind of temperament, spiritual temperament, to know the right answer is the beginning of a conversation not the end. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what you're leaning into in terms of that, that in a sense to be scripturally faithful is the starting point of an engagement and love with the other person, uh, rather than something that ends a conversation or ends an encounter, right? Or ends engagement. Um, the scriptures, I the, the way that I receive the scriptures, and I think our tradition encourages us to, to receive the scriptures, is something that actually opens our hearts and our engagement with others, rather than closes them down. Yeah, yeah. When the scriptures say to be in the world and not of the world. Uh, I think some have understood that as you live on the planet, but you have nothing to do with anyone around you. And it's like, well, no, no, no. It means live in your culture, in yeah, your society. Right. Be part of it, but don't be characterized 
by the things that are part of it that are accepted as normal mm -hmm. that are outside God's plan and will and purpose for you. Right. And um, but then determining exactly what all that entails is a deep discussion. And yeah. people tend to really want, just in general, people want life to be black and white. You mm -hmm. know, this is what you need to think about this. And you know, in reality, there's a lot of gray. And uh, oh, that's man. not to say that. Uh, there isn't objective truth or anything like that. I mean, right. you know, but uh, what it is to say is that we're presented with claims about truth all the time and we're in this gray zone mm -hmm. and we have to determine, you know, should I classify this over here or should I classify it over here? Yeah. And when we do make our own classifications, sometimes we classify things incorrectly. Right. And sometimes we don't understand things properly or even get the full context of what it is we're wrestling with. Mm -hmm. And so we need to have that humility to say it's okay to live in tension, it's okay to live in the gray, mm -hmm. and it's okay to be gracious towards others as you're trying to figure things out. Yes. Well, and I think that that's I think speaks to one of the other humilities of Anglicanism, in that uh, a bishop of the Church of England, when I you know about 20 years ago, I went to a, a, a seminar that raised. He was teaching on Anglicanism, like what is they, and um, and he said something that's always stuck with me, which is that has Anglicans we do not believe that we are the final form of the church. <laughs> now, we, we, in a sense, at best, the penultimate form. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but, and so, like, you know, hey, make no mistake. We, we think we're doing what, you know, we're being faithful, and we're, we think we're being faithful, otherwise we do it another way. Um, and, uh, but that, in a sense, we hold almost as an article of faith that we don't actually have it right all the, all the way. Yeah. And that, in a sense, when we get to heaven, it's almost a, we, we stipulate, it's not going to look like Anglicanism. Right. It, it may, we hope it looks close. Sure. <laughs> like yeah. We do, we do hope it looks close. But that, but, and so in a sense that you, you and that's part of, I think, Anglicans' um, terrorism ecumenically mm -hmm. in being part of, seeing ourselves both as part of the family of churches of the Reformation and the family of the churches of the ancient tradition and Catholic order is there are churches on both sides of that divide who say basically when we get to heaven it's going to look like us right it's going to look like the way we've got things right now and whether you know whether it's on the Baptist side or the Roman Catholic side and in a sense part of um, although we, we appear very Catholic from you know from the outside in some ways we, we really insist upon the fact that this is our life is provisional. Our ecclesial life is provisional, and uh, a, therefore a grace. Yeah, it, yeah. You know, it's, it sort of reminds me. I mean, the, the whole reason why there's Episcopalians and Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists is because we've all come to the same text, and we've said, "I think we should understand this like this," mm -hmm. and the other group says, "Actually, we understand it like this." Right. Well. Clearly, we can't all be right about everything, <laughs> right. and um, you know, and I mean, not just. And there's a lot of similarities between denominations that are, that I think are important as well to focus on. But, yeah. uh, but I mean, the reason we're distinct is because we've come to different conclusions about how to read certain aspects of Scripture, mm -hmm. and because of that, you know, we're all going to have things that are wrong, mm -hmm. and when we get to heaven, we're still going to be together, yeah. and we're all going to be, in a sense, corrected in a positive way, corrected. Uh, and that our worship, I think, will become even more pure than you know we would like to think that it is now. Yeah. Well, and I think part of what is is because of that commitment to provisionalism, 
and uh, that desire to be a, a in both have have a foot in both families and membership in both families that we want yeah. dual citizenship <laughs> um, of the of that big division uh, and but that what I find is one of the joys of being being an Anglican is that I can really I can read anyone from Oswald Chambers devotionally mm -hmm. to uh, St. Francis of Assisi devotionally. Yes. And I can read uh, John Calvin and have him sharpen my doctrinal mind, and I can read Hans Urs von Balthasar, the, the Catholic, Catholic Cardinal, to sharpen my mind. And that we, in a sense, we say that, that the Spirit has spoken through all these great lights of God's people in their generation. Mm -hmm. And that, in a sense, there's Anglicanism, is, there isn't like a, in a sense, an approved, an approved brand right. of theologian. There are Anglicans who are theologians. But that we there's a sense in which we can we feel we can read anybody and gain profit from it. Yeah, which I think is an important thing to do. Mm -hmm. uh, I know I have um, you know my students in the master's program uh, this semester. I'm teaching modern and postmodern theology. Mm -hmm. We're reading a couple of Baptist, but we're reading mostly non-Baptist, and a lot of them we're reading are from Europe. Mm -hmm. And that's important because of their contributions to theology mm -hmm. on the whole. Sure. Uh, but anytime you get a group that just says essentially, read our approved list of stuff, you know, don't read things that you disagree with, don't read things we disagree with, right. that's problematic. Uh, and it, it doesn't, um, in, in my mind, it doesn't really encapsulate what it means to love God with all your heart and mind. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, we've got to do both. And reading or, and loving God with your mind includes reading things that you may not agree with yeah. uh, that can sharpen you. Sometimes they can correct you uh, and sometimes they can help your beliefs grow stronger. Yes. And these are all good things. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Very yeah. good. Well, uh, what uh, would you say are some of the defining points of Anglicanism uh, as far as, you know, for someone watching the video that's like, okay, what are some you know, just like a sort of a little checklist of, you know, yeah. these are the things that would make someone Anglican. What, what would that look like? Well, you know, fortunately for me, the, there's a, a, a group in Chicago uh, in 1896 that got together and, and came up with four. Yeah, uh, it's called good. the Chicago Land of Quadrilateral. And so um, it's the, uh, that the, that the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments contain all things necessary for salvation. And that's an important thing. Everything that's necessary, you're going to find in there. And yeah. so, and again, that's that idea of the scriptures has uh, a, a test of human traditions. Um, has they developed? And then the, um, and then and since, the, and then the Nicene Creed mm -hmm. has the, has a sufficient statement of faith. That since that basically the Nicene Creed, that's, that is the anchor point. Those are the guardrails. And that everything beyond that is something that is, um, can be illuminating but is also contestable. Mm -hmm. uh, and this, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper um, has instituted by our Lord, uh, has basically the, the anchors of the church's ecclesial life sacramental. And then finally, um, and this is the rub, this is the last one, this always comes at the end. It's like, right, it's right. like so far so good. It's like, all right, like we can all be Anglicans. Um, and, um, it's like, you don't even have to read the Nicene Creed every Sunday, you just have to believe in it. That's right, right. Um, you just have to accept that it's true. Uh, but then the fourth one is the, uh, the office of bishops has locally adapted. Now that was something that was, 
again, from the, in a sense, as the ecumenical movement was just really starting to come to a crest in the late 19th century, early 20th century, that was really, um, in a sense, Anglicanism's way of saying that bishops been around for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you know, you know, we we we, there, we think we got bishops in there like in, in the early 100s, you know, at least there, right. and then you know, proto bishops, you know, earlier than that. But that the office of bishop has a way of ordering the church's life is something that can be and has been locally adapted. Mm -hmm. um, so on the one hand, that local adaptation could be everything from the crown appointments of bishops in England to their election in America. So America elected bishops, mm -hmm. being good Democrats, right. small right. b, right? You know, we <laughs> and the crown appoints in England. So that's a local adaptation. Mm -hmm. It can also be a local adaptation to have, uh, say, term limits on bishops. Say, so like what you find in the Lutheran traditions mm -hmm. or in Methodist traditions where um, bishops would serve a particular jurisdiction for a certain amount of years. What that, what that, ask, what that part of land, of land of quadrilateral is saying is, we're, let's have a conversation. Mm -hmm. Let's see if we can't come to a common mind around how we adapt locally in every particular place. The office of bishops in, has an instrument, and this is the important thing, as an instrument of serving God's people. In a sense, we as Anglicans, we do tend to be utilitarian and pragmatic. And basically, we simply point out that everybody has a bishop, they just might call him something else. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Whether you call yeah. him the chief presbyter or the moderator of the conference or what have you, everybody has somebody who is called to serve the wider body. Mm -hmm. And that's what a bishop is, is someone who is set aside to serve the widest possible body of believers within a culture and a, and a place. So those are really the distinctives, mm -hmm. is, um, and it's a pretty low bar, but, and yet that seems to be a tough one um, in, our, in our cultural, uh, you know, in our human brokenness. But that's, those would be really what we kind of hold out as this is what, now the Book of Common Prayer mm -hmm. is a distinctive. And, but really the, the, we experience the Book of Common Prayer has an ordering of the words of scripture so that it is convenient for the use of worship. Right. That if you really look down and if you know if you were had the annotated, an annotated version of the Book of Common Prayer where every phrase in a sense finds its biblical reference, you would find just like the marginalia uh, down, all the way down the page. And and really that from Cranmer, who was a great one of the great reformers and in touch with the, he was a Geneva and he went to Geneva in exile, so he became influenced by Calvinism. But uh, he was a deep reader of scripture. And in, in, in producing the first book of Common Prayer, he was very self-consciously attempting in a, in a, in a, um, a time when, very, when the whole population of England was in a sense, just coming into contact with the Bible in English, Right? So yeah. that wasn't baked in, like the kind of the way we know the Bible now. They, and so he, for him, the Book of Common Prayer was a way of introducing the English people to the words of the scriptures in the context of their prayer life. Yeah, And well, so that's really what the Book of Common Prayer represents. To me, it's a very rich book because, uh, you know, as you go through a lot of the prayers that are in it, you find yourself essentially praying scripture. And praying scripture is a very rewarding process, uh, but also I think there's just something, I don't know, very special and unique about praying scripture that gets you out of the, here's what I want, what I want, what I want mindset, and into, you know, conform me to your word. Yes. 
Well, just as, a, as an example, the, in an Anglican funeral, the, the name of the deceased is only mentioned twice, outside of the homily, right? Outside of the, the homily, but in terms of the liturgy itself, the focus is on the promises of Christ to eternal life. And we literally will only read the name of, of the deceased once in a prayer at the beginning and once in a prayer towards the middle. Mm -hmm. Everything else is about Jesus. It's about the word. It's about the promises that make sense of this whole gathering. And I think that's kind of the, that Anglican focus on mm -hmm. ordered reading of scripture and which the Book of Common Prayer represents. Yeah, very good. Well, uh, Dean Price, thank you so much for your time today. And uh, for those of you guys at home, thank you for, for watching and listening. And we will see you again next time on the Faith and Culture Now podcast. Thanks so much.